0: Now, following the cleansing of the camp, what then happened was God then told Moses to have the people consecrate themselves, right? They needed to cleanse themselves. They needed to work on honoring God, right? So while this process is taking place and the people are kind of working on themselves, Moses approaches God. And when he goes there, he has the plan to say, you know what, I want to try to to stand in the middle. I want to try to make make an atonement for the people. He wants to try to make things right. He wants to deal with their sin. He actually offers himself as a payment. An atonement is a payment. He offers himself as a payment for the debt of the people, right? And in doing so, we saw last week that he was in fact picturing the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the atonement of sin for the world, right? We saw that In him, But we found out then God informed him that, look, you know what? That's not going to happen. First of all, because Moses could never do that. He was not righteous. He was not sinless. He's a normal human being. And what happens is he says, look, God's going to hold each person individually accountable for their sin. Now, that's the same standard that God holds humanity to today. We have individual accountability, right? Now, as we see this, we all deal with the same plague. There's a plague that's unfortunately stricken out across our world. And that plague is sin. It's our natural tendency to defy God. It's our natural tendency to do wrong. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what we believe, no matter where we're from, every single person, no matter who we are, we will all stand accountable to God one day. But because of his mercy, because of his love, God sent us a Savior. Jesus, who Moses pictures, offered Himself to pay the debt of humanity for the sin that we've committed against the Lord, which is all of us have sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Jesus came and paid that price that no one could pay. And we looked at that in that message, the power of atonement, as we celebrated Easter, the victory of God receiving Jesus' sacrifice. But this morning, we're going to circle back to the people's accountability, okay? We're going to be looking as they're preparing to move forward on their journey, only now, because of their sin of the golden calf, right, we understand that God left us right where we finished up in 32, as these stiff-necked Israelites, guess what? They're going to face a judgment, a judgment of plagues. They're going to be stricken upon them, okay? Exodus 33, verse 1. So we've just found out these folks are getting ready to head out, and they're going to be facing plagues. Verse 33, chapter 33, verse 1. It says, "...and the Lord said unto Moses, Depart, and go up hence thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt." Unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. Right? The Lord's focus here is to get Moses and the people off of the failure, right? He wants to get Moses off of their failure. Now understand, God's still going to hold them accountable. He's not forgetting what they've done, but He's trying to get them back on the task at hand, which is to get them to the promised land, right? To get them to the promised land, that land of milk and honey, that promise, right? He reminds Moses of what's been accomplished. Notice he he goes back and he says, that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. He said, look, Moses, don't forget where we've come from. Don't forget the road that we've gone down. Don't forget the great successes that have taken place. Let's not forget those things, right? Because he wants Moses not to get fixated on the failures and the shortcomings of his brethren. Because guess what? As humanity, we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to focus when people fail. We have a tendency to focus on their failure and almost try to beat them up with it. And let me just tell you, by it is never going to accomplish anything for you to focus on people's failures. God does not do that in this situation. He wants them to move forward. He's trying to get their focus on the future, on where it is they're going, right? Because you see the Lord, He sees them and He sees us for who we will, for who we will be one day, right? God sees us. He's already seen our future. And I know we can't perceive that, but God can. He's already seen our future. Listen to this in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and through thirteen. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me. Notice this is in future tense. Then ye shall call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Now that phrase, ye shall seek me, I want you to remember that phrase. There's going to be a theme through our message today that's going to be hitting that principle of seeking God, seeking God. And he says here that if you will seek me, you will find me. If you seek, you will find when you shall search for me with all your heart. See, God knows all, right? It does, past, present, future, He knows it all. It does not matter. He is not bound by time, by space, by any limiting factor, right? It does not apply. God has what is called foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, meaning He already knows. He is omnipotent. He has all the answers, right? But while God's trying to focus us and the Israelites, right? We picture the Israelites trying to focus us on our future, well, guess what? We have an enemy. And guess what our enemy is going to do? He's going to try to drag us into our past. He's going to try to drag us into our past. You see, the devil, like us, he doesn't know the future. He does not know what the future holds. Other than reading in the Scriptures what God tells us through prophecies, he does not know. But he is going to do his very best to derail our walk with God. He does that by getting our focus off of where we are going and getting our focus on we've been. He gets us focused on the past. Guess what? It's all he has, but it is extremely effective. If any of us have ever been beaten up with our past, memories of things where we failed, opportunities and situations that we dropped the ball, or when we sinned against God, and he uses these things again and again and again to drag us down. He uses our past failures to stop us from moving forward. Some people is like an anchor in their life. God's trying to blow through their life, and their sails are up, and, man, they're ready. But they just can't make any ground because the anchor's still in the ground. We've got to pull up that anchor, man. We've got to let go of the past. Remember that every action that God takes, there always is the devil with a, 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 a counteraction. He's always trying to work. Every time you see God do something, the devil tries to derail it. We can see it all the way back in the book of Genesis. Look at the very beginning. What happens when God initially gets creation up and up and running? Guess who comes along? Right? He wants to derail us through discouragement, right? We might think things like, you know, how could God use use me, right? After I've done this. I think about my failure. I go, how could God use me through fear? Remember when you failed last time? Remember that? Through doubt. How could God forgive you after what you've done? Confusion right? If God is love, then why does he allow things like suffering? And he gets us questioning and doubting, and he tries to get us all out of whack, right? We go back to Genesis 3. And when you first find the devil, guess what? The very first words that you ever see recorded of him is he is trying to bring in confusion. He's introducing doubt. Surely hath God said. He immediately attacks God's word Because guess what? He hates God. And because he hates God, guess what? He hates God's greatest creation. That's you and I. We are the only creation on this earth created in God's image. The only one. And as the pinnacle creation, he hates us and wants to destroy us. He desperately, desperately wants to. Because guess what? His focus is always, always going to be on what's already happened. What's always always what's already happened? When we think about the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul had a terrible background, an awful background. He had, had all kinds of guilt that he could have carried. But listen, to this in Philippians three, the book of Philippians is all about the joy of the Lord. Remember, Paul is chained up at this point; he's in prison. Philippians three, verses thirteen and fourteen, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. This is after God has done miraculous, incredible things through God's life, through Paul's life. He has reasons to maybe think he's something special. But check this out. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I don't feel like I've arrived. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He says, look, I'm going to forget the past and I'm going to focus on my future. And he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, look, I'm going to press Forward. I'm not going to spend my time worrying about my past. I'm going to focus on my future. And that's exactly what God's doing here. He's using the exact same strategy with Moses. He's redirecting Moses and saying, look, let's get focused on where you're going. The Lord is not only reminding Moses of his previous successes, when we look back there and we see what he talks about Egypt, and remember that what this is, when he's pointing back, he's saying, look, Moses, I've been faithful through it all. I've been faithful through it all. Everything you've gone through, I've been there. Remember, Moses, this is, nothing's changed. I'm still on the throne. Don't be afraid, Moses. Don't get freaked out. But he's also, at the same time, reminding him of his promises. Look at this. In that verse, it says, Unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying unto thy seed, notice the word, will I give it. It is a promise a promise from God. He says, look, don't lose sight of the fact of what I've already done. I've proven my faithfulness and I've also given promises that I will not break. God always keeps his promises. uh, Psalm 89, verse 34 says, my covenant will I not break. He says, I will not break my promise, God says, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God is good on what he says he'll make it good. If we ever find ourselves, look, if you're you're in your Christian walk and you find yourself derailed because the devil has dragged you into a mess or you found yourself stumbling into a mess on your own, go back to God's strategy. Look at what he's teaching Moses. Look what he's showing him. Reflect on God's faithfulness, right? Look at what God's already done, how he's faithfully been with you, and then hold on to his promises because guess what? He's going to keep them. So we hold on to his promises and we remember God's faithfulness. And that verse 23, 19, it says this, hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? He is going to make it good. We may not be able to depend upon many things in this life, but one thing we can absolutely count on is God. Verse 2, and I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusites. All the sites are getting out, right? So the people have lost the presence of God, right? Because of their sin, they've lost the presence of God. But notice this. Go back in that verse. He says, I will drive out the Canaanite, right? He lists the people. He says, I will. So the angel is going to be there, but guess what? He's still going to deal with these issues of their enemies himself. He's going to fight for the people. So the angel is there simply as a guide, but God himself will deal with their enemies. So he's certainly not forsaken them, but what we do see here is their closeness has been seriously affected. It's affected because of sin. The very same thing, man. Sin always has a negative effect. If you and I as Christians, if we have sin in our lives, guess what? It causes division between us and God. Isaiah 59.2 says this, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Galatians 6-7 tells us, it says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. We're going to reap what we sow. If we do evil, guess what? We're going to get evil back. There are consequences to sin, and that is separation is one of the biggest ones of all. That separation. Verse 3. Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Right? He's saying, look, I want you guys to head to the promised land. Now understand, the promised land, as a Christian, you and I, when we're in this Christian life, we're in the wilderness. We've seen, we've seen pictured through the, through the picture of the Israelites. We're in the midst of the wilderness, but God wants to get us to that abundant life. God wants to get us to that promised land. That promised land is a heavenly existence on earth where we're like literally able to walk with God and feel his presence and his closeness. That's God's desire for us. And God simply saying, he said, look, when you drop the ball, when you mess up, don't get so focused on the failure. Focus on getting to the promised land. Focus on moving forward. Don't get hung up in the past. Move forward. Eyes on the promise. Eyes on the promise, right? Eyes, on, I don't know why I'm pointing over there because y'all are over there. But anyway, I'm pointing over there. Remember, that when God's instructing Moses, what does he do? He constantly refers to him. If we go on through this book of Exodus, we've noticed that God's always talking about being in the midst of the people. That's his desire to be in the midst of the people. But notice what he said in that verse we just read, right? He said, because of their sin with the golden calf, no longer, I will no longer go up in the midst. I will no longer go up in the midst. So even now, right? We notice also again that the fact, even through their failure here, God is extending them mercy. God is extending them grace. He's putting distance between himself and them for their own protection. He says that I may not consume thee. He says, look, I'm going to separate myself from you. God sees their upcoming failures. God knows they're rebellious. Look what he calls them, stiff-necked. He knows they're rebellious. So what he's doing is actually offering them a buffer from his wrath by creating separation, right? They deserve destruction, but what do they receive? They receive mercy, and they receive grace. God spares them. Boy, is that not many of our stories? I mean, does that not show us, so many of us? Prior to salvation and even after salvation, we find ourselves in a mess. We deserve destruction. We deserve God's judgment, but God gives us grace. He offers us grace. The love of God is so unbelievable. When we fail and we deserve His punishment, He will withhold His punishment because He loves us. He will chasten us, not for the sake of hurting us, but to draw us back to Him. It's about a relationship with God that's fulfilling for us, but what happens through that fulfillment is we give God glory through the life that we get to live. And remember, the Israelites, they're us. And guess what? We're them. This picture's back and forth. Same arrogance same pride same stiff-necked people look in the mirror that's us we're that stiff-necked people verse 4 and when the people heard these evil tidings they mourned and no man did put on his ornament now all of a sudden things are getting real whoa 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 look god's been with them the whole way and they've gone through all kinds of stuff they've not appreciated him like they should have but all of a sudden he says well guess what i'm not going to be with you whoa Fear strikes the people, right? Their Israelite reaction is great sadness, right? As reality sinks in, God's not going to be with them. Imagine this. What if when you and I sinned, what if we did something wrong? What if we failed? The Holy Spirit that lives within us, what if he left? What if the seal that holds our salvation, the Holy Spirit of God, what if that seal was broken? Every time we failed him, right? Thankfully, that's impossible. Thankfully, that cannot happen as born again believers, as having the indwelling Holy Spirit, we cannot lose that Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says this: In whom also ye also in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. He says, if "You heard the truth. God spoke through His word, the gospel of your salvation. You've received Christ as your as your Savior. In whom also ye have uh, also." Also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We're sealed by the Spirit of God. Our soul is protected. Ephesians 4.30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. God seals us. We're not sealed by our works. We're not sealed by the person that we are, by our personality, by anything else. We're sealed through the Spirit. That is a promise of God. But guess what? These Old Testament saints, these Old Testament folks, guess what? For the Old Testament, they were not sealed by the Spirit. There is no one prior to Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, that it was in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, means we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Guess what? These folks here. Now, the Holy Spirit did come down upon people in the Old Testament. They have what would be called an anointing for a specific purpose or a specific time period. Think about King David, right? Listen to David's statement in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, 11. He says, cast me not away from thy presence and listen to this next part and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. This is people that believe they can lose their salvation. I'm telling you, they will fall back on this verse not understanding the fact that there is no indwelling Holy Spirit. They are not sealed by the Spirit. This is not related to the church, to the believer. This is an Old Testament concept. Because what happened? David was anointed to be king. That was David's anointing. And the Holy Spirit, he came down upon him for that. So prior to Christ, there is no indwelling Holy Spirit. It does not exist. First of all, because Christ had not paid the atonement of sin for the world, right? That had not taken place yet. And secondly, because guess what? The Holy Spirit of God had not come to earth to dwell, right? The Holy Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So we see here two things, two factors that prove or show us that it's not the case. But as church age saints, guess what? The Holy Spirit of God. It dwells within us. The Bible calls us the temple, right? The temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit. John 14.10 teaches us that. John 14.17, Romans 8.11, and 1 Corinthians 3.16 teach that principle clearly, without a doubt. Verse 5, For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I know you're rebellious. I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore, now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. God tells Moses to warn the people, hey man, it's time to get serious about serving God. It's time to get real. This is now a time for humility. This is a time for absolute humility. This isn't about gaining attention, right? Based upon the way one looks, right? That's prideful. He says, this is a time For a humble and a contrite heart, man, you need to be on your face. We've been talking about on Wednesday nights, one of the the subject matter that we're on right now in our study through the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, and what we've been looking at is that aspect of humility. Humility. We understand that humility is the key to serving God. It's the key to working and having God work in our lives. Humility is absolutely paramount. And this is what God is teaching These rebellious Israelites, hey man, this is a time for you guys to be focused on serving. Not upon serving self, but upon serving me. Because they're stiff-necked. Guess what? He still has to scare them. Listen to what he says. I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Okay, so having heard just that, this is their reaction. Verse number six. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount of Horeb. They're like, oh, snap, man, get that off. You know, well, every little thing they can get off, man, they're taking off. You know, Honey, is this one? Of what do you think? And they're, man, they're throwing it off. Ugh. They're afraid, man. They're scared. They don't want to have anything going on. They're trying to submit, but they're stiff-necked. They're, they're, they're hard of hearing, man. They don't, want, they don't respond as they should. So God it literally has to, has to threaten them. Verse 7, And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp afar off from the camp, and called at the tabernacle of the congregation. It came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. So what's happened here, okay? We understand, we 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 know that God's been giving instructions for, for months. We've been studying this. God's been giving instructions for the future, the soon-to-be-built tabernacle. And we look at this and go, well, how in the world is he setting up the tabernacle? This is his own personal tent, okay? He's setting this up as a place, a dwelling place, that he can meet with God. Okay? So he takes it far outside of the temple, or far outside of the camp. Now, remember where the tabernacle was supposed to be. The design that God has is that it will be right in the center of the camp, but this one's going to be set way off. It doesn't say just outside, it says far away from the camp. God's principle here, what's happening is Moses, he's protecting the people. And at the same time, he's honoring God, right? He's honoring God by simply not allowing him to be in the midst of the folks. He's trying to create this separation because guess what? He wants to meet with God. He wants to meet with him. But the people are rebellious. And because of that, this is the, this is the extent that we have to go to. Now, you and I look at these Israelites, right? We look at them and we go, man, our tendency is to be like this. I just can't believe these Israelites could be so disrespectful. How can they be so, 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 so wrong? How can they do so many things wrong and have such a rebellious spirit after all that God has done for them? They've just witnessed the plague. They've just gone through the Red Sea. They've just provided water. God's just provided food. He's, I mean He's done all these things. They've just seen all this stuff. How in the world can they be so disrespectful to God? But remember, who is it that they picture? Us, right? Us. And God blesses us again and again and again and again and again and again. And we will stand in in defiance, defiance, that's the word I was looking for, stand in defiance of him on a day we just go, you know what, I want what I want. And that's exactly the same struggle that these Israelites are dealing with. They're stiff-necked just like us. And see, Moses names his temporary tabernacle. He calls it the the tabernacle of the congregation. And what's interesting, if you go back into Exodus uh, 27-21, what you'll find is actually that that phrase right there, the congregation, it's like a, the uh, the tabernacle of the congregation. That's what God calls the court right outside of the most holy place. So God would dwell in the holy of holies, and just outside of that would be the tabernacle of congregation. That is what he names it. And this is some place that's obviously not for God, but it's to be close to God. So, right, look at this right here. And what's interesting is the fact that we notice here the fact that God, whenever he goes and he seeks him, right, he's seeking the Lord, they, the people that were going to go see him or going to go spend time or go commune with God or seek the Lord, they had to take this long trip. They had to take this long walk outside of the camp in order to get to Moses' tent, right? So to get to the tabernacle of the congregation. This is a long walk, a humbling walk, right? And they were admitting and were taking this walk as they step away from everyone else and everyone's sitting there watching them, they're admitting that guess what? they need help. They're admitting that they are seeking God, right? That they needed God. Now, most people, guess what? When they come to church for the first time, that's kind of the same way. They're coming going, you know what? I don't, I don't know where else to turn. I don't know what else to do. And I don't care who sees me because I'm going to go see if God can help. There may be some of you guys that came here for the very first time when you went through the doors of this church, You came in with that mindset. You know what? I don't care who sees me. I've tried everything else. And you know what? I'm going to try God. And I'm so thankful that if you came, that you did experience God. I promise you, he was here because he meets with us every single week. So you met with God. You saw him. And guess what? You found him. Now, whether or not you responded or not, I don't know. But let me tell you this. God is trying to reach you. Verse number eight. And it came to pass when Moses went up out of the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting, that little detail? Isn't that interesting? And it came to pass when he went into the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his door and looked after Moses. Moses had made it clear who he stands for, that he stands for and he stands with God, right? He had made it absolutely clear. So when he heads to the tabernacle, when he goes seeking the Lord, these recently humbled people, guess what? They watch him. They observe the man of God. They look at what he's doing, right? We look at him. When someone truly serves God, truly loves God, truly stands for God, guess what? People take notice. People see it. We call it in the, in, in, in the church, we call it a testimony. A testimony. It's what the conversation of your life speaks to the world, right? How do we live? As Christians, guess what? We either have a good testimony or we have a bad testimony. We're either known as Moses was, as being a man or a woman of, of God who's committed and honestly, sincerely, truthfully seeking the Lord, or. Perhaps our testimony speaks more of of our commitment to ourselves, right? Maybe it speaks of, of our entertainment or our desires or maybe even our possessions, right? What does the world see about our life? And instead of seeing us going to meet with God on Sundays, instead of seeing us heading to church, they see us heading to the lake or they see us heading to the ball game or maybe we're going to the park or going to the mall or fill in the blank, whatever fits for your life. And that testimony that we speak with our life, what does our walk tell people about who we serve? What does our testimony say to this world? Are we willing to take the long walk of faith away from our old friends in order to seek God? Are we willing to take that long walk of faith outside, maybe away from our own friends, our old friends? How about our, our family even? Walking away from our family. People that stand in opposition to God. And we say, I for one, I'm going to seek the Lord. Whether you support me or not, I'm going to do it. And here's a hard one. Here's a really difficult one. Are we willing to take that long walk of faith, right? Away from our religion in order to seek God. You see, religion is, is not, and it will never be the answer. Religion is not where it's at. Ceremonial behavior that makes people feel godly, (laughs) in reality, what it's doing, it does nothing but feed their flesh. They feel like as if they're special. They feel as if they're superior. They feel as if there's something unique about them. And understand, we're all sinners saved by grace. The only good thing in our life is because God intervened in our life. We are wicked by nature. We're, we're rebellious by nature. We're stiff-necked by nature. And if you go somewhere and you do these ceremonies and you do these things and it makes you feel outwardly as if you're something special, it is a problem. Guess what? We're describing the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus confronted in the Bible. When we go to Matthew 23, listen to this. Matthew 23. The whole Matthew 23, you read the whole thing. He's, he's tearing into them. But listen to this. Talking about people that are involved in religious behavior that rewards the flesh. Listen to this in verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Verse twenty-six. Thou blind Pharisees, you can't. He's look, you can't even see your own behavior. Cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. He's saying, look, instead of focusing on the outside the way you appear, the way you dress, the haircut that you have and all this stuff, the ceremonial aspects of your religion, instead of that, why don't you work on your heart? Because what's wonderful is the fact that if God, if you work on your walk with God in your heart, guess what will happen? Your outside will follow The problem is if you focus on the outside and you conform the outside, what will happen is you'll begin to feel as if you're something special and you'll become superior. And guess what? You'll lose sight of your walk with God, which is a matter of humility because you become prideful because of your religion. It is a dangerous, dangerous place. And these Pharisees have fallen head first into it. And our Savior is confronting them on it. Listen to verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers. These are tombs whited tombs that are painted white, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And in verse 28, he clears it up for us. He's not talking about cups. He's not talking about tombs. Even so, ye ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You look religious to the world. You look like this godly person. You've got all the things in order. Your life lines up with all the things that you should be godly according to the world's standards. The problem is your heart is far from God. God forbid this would be a description of us. But I'm telling you, if it is, it's time to get right. It's time to cleanse these things out of your life. It's time to remove sin and work on your holiness and loving God. Because if you do, guess what? He will change you. And you will not lose out on anything. You're not going to miss out on anything. You're not going to, to, to feel as if you lost out or, 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 or you're missing your, the things of this world. Because guess what? You will never be fulfilled by the things of this world. They will never fulfill you no matter how much you try. They will leave you in pain. They will leave you in suffering. They will leave destruction in your life or your family. But let me tell you, if you, saw, if you honor God and you love Him, man, I'm telling you, as a testimony of somebody who's lived both ways, there is nothing... There's nothing like serving God. You can never be fulfilled with what he can do in your life if you give yourself to him. Coming to God is not about feeling better about ourselves. That's not what it is. It's about knowing God. Right? Not for, for who we think he is, not for what we what we've been taught that he is, but who he who he really is. See, God is a friend. You need to know God like you do your best friend, like you know no one else on this earth. You understand Him that much because you're so close and intimate with Him. You spend time with Him, an intimate, honest relationship. Let me assure you, if you ever experience this kind of relationship that I'm talking to you about, this one with God that God intends for us, man, you won't be able to wipe the smile off your face. Because no matter what happens in this world, no matter what fear people may be living in, you can walk in faith because your friend is with you. And guess what? He is a faithful friend. He's a faithful friend. Not because of how good we feel about ourselves. Not because of any of the religious reasons. But because we finally see God for who He is. And then we understand this amazing truth. That we're we're one of His. And that He loves us. Imagine that. See, it's a matter of abject humility combined with the understanding of how much God, the God of the universe, how much he loves us. And I want to think about a, uh, an earthly example or a human perspective example. And I thought about this. You know, imagine a, a family going out on a camping trip in a very remote place. And there's a little boy in that family, say he's five years old. And let's say he doesn't listen to his parents. His dad says, look, don't wander away from the camp. Don't wander away from the camp. Don't wander away from the camp. And night falls, and guess what the little boy does? He wanders away from the camp and he gets lost, terribly lost. And he spends three days in the wilderness, scared, frightened, fearful, overwhelmed, hungry, thirsty, fearful for death, not in understanding anything about his circumstance, knowing that he did it to himself. He didn't listen. He disrespected his dad. He did wrong. But then suddenly he hears, he hears in the distance a voice calling his name. And he hears it far away. And he gets closer. And he cries out. He seeks his father. And what does his father do? He comes to him. And he gathers him in his arms. Imagine. Imagine the joy in that little boy's heart. Imagine the gratitude, the humility. Right? The incredible relief of being reunited with His Father. Let me just tell you, you were created by God. And when you finally come to Him like that, and He gathers you in His arms, you will feel the most amazing reuniting joy that you could possibly imagine. Whether you believe in Him or not is irrelevant. He still created you. He loves you, and He wants a relationship with you. It's about humility, absolute humility. On a whole another level, Right? Consider this. Here's this person who believes that, you know what? You were created by a, a random event, you know, from a chaotic universe that had no purpose and plan. You just happened to, to exist. And you went from believing that garbage to understanding that in fact you were calculated and a planned event was your life and that God specifically created you because he loved you, because he wanted to walk with you. He wanted to be, personally have a relationship with you. He wanted to use your life for something glorious for an eternal purpose. And you find out that the most fulfilling existence imaginable is available to you. This is what God offers. He loves the whole world. Even the wrong, the most wretched, most awful person in the world, God is ready to redeem them. And even after hearing this amazing news, this wonderful news, man, guess what? There will still be people that will reject God straight up. There will be people that will hear this amazing news And they would rather cling to their religiosity. They would rather cling to their ceremonial rituals and their church-bound concepts that come from men. And they'll focus on themselves and their own personal growth instead of realizing that it's focusing on God as the answer. And there will be a few. There will be a few who will earnestly seek God. And praise the Lord. Because when you seek Him, guess what? We already know this because we heard it earlier. But Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says this. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Seek Him, and you will find Him. And what a beautiful example Moses is of that concept. Verse 9, And it came to pass on as Moses entered into the tabernacle, and the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. The Lord talked with Moses. See, Moses sought God. Moses sought God, and guess what? If he sought, guess what he would do? He would find. God made sure to come right where he was. He came down to him. The cloud is always representative. You'll find it all the way to the book of Revelation. The cloud is always representative of God's presence. I want well, you notice something very important. In this temporary tabernacle, this tabernacle of the congregation, which was a picture of that court just outside of where God would dwell in the holy place where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, there he does not go in. Notice this. He does not enter the tabernacle. Moses is inside. It says that he stands at the door. He stands at the door. God wants to make sure that he meets with Moses, but this is not the right place. This is not his holy of holies. And pay attention to the last five words in verse 9. The Lord talked with Moses. doesn't say that he talked to Moses, but he talked with Moses. Talked with Moses. a close, intimate relationship, man. It's intended for every one of us. We've talked about it on Wednesday nights. It requires... Talking and receiving, hearing, speaking, we have a conversation with somebody. That means that we speak and that they speak. God speaks to His Word. We speak through our prayers. It's a relationship, a walk with God where we hear from Him. And if we don't have it, guess what? If we don't have that relationship, it's because we're not seeking Him. Because if we seek, it promises that we will find. Verse 10, And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And just look, right? One person... One person seeking God, look what it's done. It says, all of them, all the people rose up and worshipped. Look at the testimony, this one man, just one man standing for God, one man doing the right thing. Our lives are for God's glory, man. When you spend that personal time with God, when you get closer to Him, when you fall in love with Him, man, guess what? And you live your life, it shouts of the goodness of God to this world. Your life shouts to the world who He is. It tells the hopeless that guess what? There's hope. It tells the, the broken that they can be restored. It tells the lonely that guess what? There's an amazing companionship available to them. It tells the fearful and the distraught that they can find peace. And man, I'm telling you, it tells the unloved that there is true love. Verse 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his, unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. And, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Want you pay attention just real quick. Joshua understand Joshua was literally Moses' disciple. He was following him one day he would be his successor. God had him in place to take them into the promised land. And what we see here is Joshua is soaking it up. He's learning by watching Moses walk with God. And would you look at this, right? Face to face it says, face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Speaketh to his friend. Let me ask you this. Do you ever have conversations with God? I don't mean you sit on a park bench and talk to God. That might be a little bit weird because it doesn't work like that. God speaks through his word. What I mean is this. Have you ever been reading God's word, reading something? And man, I'm telling you what, it speaks to you in a way that it absolutely floors you. It hits you right between the eyes and you're like, whoa, God just showed me something. Or maybe you're praying and God deals with your heart about a situation. Or maybe you're in a situation where you all suddenly, you you know what, I shouldn't be here. Or you know what, hey, I feel peace here. God speaks to us, right? We feel his presence. We receive from him. We hear from him. We have ears to hear. Or maybe there's been times, have you ever poured your heart out to God? I mean, just brokenhearted, poured everything out. Just laid it at the floor. Poured out with tears on the ground. And guess what? You felt the presence of God. You felt his comfort come over you. That closeness. I'm talking about a relationship like that. Proverbs 18, 24 says this, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. But look at this next part. And there is a friend, this is referring to God, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. God is a friend like no other. Because guess what? He sees the real us. Every awful, disgusting detail of our life that we've hidden from the world that no one else knows. The most awful of awful God sees it, and yet he loves us. (laughs) God has watched us consciously defy him when we chose sin. When we fed our flesh and our sinful lusts, he's watched it and seen all of it. And guess what? He still loves us. Knowing all our failures, he remains faithful, a faithful friend. And we know that Moses was a faithful friend to God. We see that. The question is, how about us? Are we that faithful friend to God? James 4, 4 says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. What that means is, you're unfaithful. You that are unfaithful. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So the question for us this morning is, are we a friend of God? Because you have a choice. We can be a friend of the world or we be a friend of God. Or are you maybe simply just an acquaintance? You've got a, a pleasant relationship. Maybe you're like a, a Facebook friend. We know that an intimate relationship with God, a personal, on a personal level, man, it develops us, it strengthens us. It gives us this incredible abundant life that God has in store for us. That picture of the promised land that we see. But guess what? We've also witnessed the fact that, guess, your, your life, this abundant life, guess what? It affects the world around you. Your testimony speaks volumes to the people around you. It speaks volumes to the lost world. So if you're a faithful friend of God, I'm going to exhort you to display it to the world. If you are that faithful friend, if you are that one that loves the Lord, that you hear from Him every day, that you speak to Him every day, that your life reflects His love, reflect that love into the world and let people see it. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. But if you're not, if you're not that friend, either you've been unfaithful to your friend, or you've actually never really met him. And that's the question. If you're here today and you say, you know what? <laughs> I-, I believe in God. Good, 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 good. It's not going to get you to heaven. I I pray. Good. Good. Not going to get you to heaven. It's about a personal relationship with God. It's not about your religion. It's not about your 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 church attendance. It's not about your family. It's not about who you are. It's not about anything else. It's about one thing. Do we submit ourselves to God? Jesus Christ paid the price for the sins of the world on the cross. He loves you exactly as you are, as broken as you are, as messed up as you are, as, as 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 messed up as you are, right? As messed up as we are. God looks at us and he says, you know what? I love you. I love you and I want to restore you because I see what I started with. My creation, I see it and I know what I can make with that. Just surrender to me and let me change your life. Let me restore you and use you for God's glory. If you're here today and you say, you know what? I do not have that. If you've walked with God and you've stepped away, it's time to simply go, you know what? Go back and look what God's already done. Recognize what it is he's done in your life and then hold on to the promises of God that he will restore you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's given us a promise. So their heads bowed and our eyes closed. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we love you. We thank you so much for today and the opportunity you've given us, God, to be in your house. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing message of truth, God, that we get to see and we get to see what it is to be a friend of God. Thank you for the picture we see in Moses. And, Lord, what a friend he is to the Lord. Help us to mirror him in our lives. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you are here today and you say, you know what, I, I don't know God. I don't know him. I, I know him religiously, but I don't know him personally. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and receive the, receive the greatest gift ever given. The very one that I received on August 11th, 2001, is offered to you right now. And it will change your forever If you truly, with your whole heart, want to receive Christ, the Bible says if you'll seek Him with your whole heart, that you will find Him. And guess what? If you're online today and you're watching, you have found Him. He is here, and He's speaking to your heart right now. And I would ask you, if you want to receive Him as your Savior, if you're willing to give up your previous life and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and let Him save you, I'm going to give you that chance right now. It's not a matter of a magic prayer. It's not a matter of a ceremony. God's listening to our hearts. He's listening to your heart. And right where you are, he's asking you to bow your head. He's asking you right now to receive him. And if you want to do that, I'm going to lead you in prayer. It won't be the words. It'll be your heart that will save you. If with your whole heart you truly want to receive him, you will. Right now, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, receive him now. I'm going to pray. Have you received, have you repeat after me and speaking to God? Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for what I've done. God, I understand that you love me in spite of my sin, that you came to earth, that you died on the cross for my sins. You were buried, and on the third day you raised from the dead, proving you were God. I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and to save my soul. God, I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.